Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. I have two really exciting friends that are joining me today, and they're people that I've known for a very long time in the industry. Even more exciting, they're together. They're side by side. So I have a bit of FOMO because I am far away on the other side of the Atlantic and on the other side of Zoom. Today with me, Mr. Mark Faulkner, who's the co-founder of Credit Benchmark, and Mr. Andy Dyson, who is the CEO of Isla. I know you guys have even worked together in your long career with one another, maybe multiple times, I don't know. But anyway... I'm excited to have you both. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So the backstory for our listeners is that when we planned this, it was earlier in the summer. We actually came up with the idea when we were together at the ISLA conference that Andy so kindly hosted for the industry. And we thought that this would be a topic today just to jump right into it. We're going to talk about Basel III and the implementation and ultimately the impact on securities finance. But we thought that it's a topic that is much discussed, but less understood by the market. And in particular, some different market participants probably have even less familiarity with what ultimately the impacts are going to be. So we're going to jump into that. But when we talked about it, we said, let's do this. And you two talked about doing it in person, which I thought was great. And so you've had lunch, you've explored Mark's home, you've apparently seen all sorts of wildlife, both tamed and maybe perhaps not tamed. Any opening commentary on the last couple hours that you two have had together before we get started here? Omelets and courgettes and chickens and pigs and ducks and sheep and cows, all kinds of things going on here. Peregrine falcons and owls as well. So did you just ask Andy to join you at your home, Mark, for, to record this so that he could help clean out the chicken coop? Or yeah, what was, well, what was, was the real motivation? Was part of it, but I got an all clear yesterday from a hip replacement operation that I had in late July, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to be signed off. And I'm pleased to say I got the sign off yesterday, and I'm very grateful that Andy took it upon himself to get in his mobile and get here today. And I think we're going to have some fun today. It's a great topic. And I hope we can do it justice. Yes, I would agree. And I think that it's been a delightful morning to spend a bit of time. I think what it also tells you is that whilst this is a great topic and it's really, really important for the industry that we're in, also there's another world out there that we all should be (laughs) cognizant of. But yeah, good time had by all. Good. You mean that work-life balance that we all strive so hard to achieve? Yeah. Yeah. And I think while we're not going to have a podcast on work-life balance, I think what's important is that We're all here for a reason because we care about the industry passionately that we've been involved in for probably several decades between us. What we've now got facing us is a different type of challenge because we've all looked at various incarnations of regulation, policy and changes that have affected what we do Mm. on a daily basis. And the industry today is in some ways unrecognisable from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But with the arrival of the BAL framework in its latest incarnation called the BAL Endgame, which sounds a bit like a movie title, if I'm honest, that might include See, Marvel yeah. characters. Right. We could discuss which characters the two of you would play in I that Groot. superhero comic adventure movie. I'm not Groot. I'm the tree thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think what we've got before us is something which is quite different. And I think the BAL framework is quite different because of 
the way it's putting its arms around everything that we do and things that we won't even get to today, like operational risk, form part of the Baal framework. And today we're going to be talking primarily about the impact on credit risk mm. through RWAs and things like that. But we shouldn't forget that the Baal framework brings with it different pillars that cover things like operational risk, which we as an industry, I don't think have even started thinking about because that too in an industry where sometimes securities and collateral don't necessarily move in sync, where, let's just say, it could get to a point where you're also eating up operational capital. I think that's something else that's coming. Yeah, and I think, Brooke, I know as we were thinking about what the motivation for doing this was, and it's to try and provide background logic, some form of information, but there's nothing being sold here, which is a pleasure, actually. Mm. It's nice to be on a conversation where actually it's about a major challenge. There are lots of ramifications, many different potential solutions, but also how a conversation like this, the objective, I think, primarily is to raise awareness and to provoke individuals who have complex, busy lives already to open their minds to the challenges of forthcoming regulation that may not directly impact them because they're not a bank, but that it will impact their activity in the capital markets in general and also in securities finance in particular, which is what we're going to talk about yeah. today. This is bigger than securities lending. This is bigger than repo. This is a capital markets challenge. It's front and center that falls at the door of the regulated banks, yeah. but it has mm -hmm. ramifications for every custodian, for every asset manager and every fund of any different type many different types in the financing business. And it's that sort of ripple effect that we're looking to try, I think, if I'm right, Brooke, to try and sort of really just raise awareness of that such that people will become more cognizant of why it's happening, how it's happening, and what it means for their counterparts, their providers, their agents, their custodians, their asset managers, and themselves. This has ramifications for pension funds, investors, whether you're in a sovereign wealth pension fund or a mutual fund, this has real world implications for you in your capital markets activity. And I think that's what we're trying to say here. It may feel very distant. Mm. Why do I care? I'm not a regulated bank. What is Basel? Where is Basel? Is it 3.1 or 4.0? Why can't anybody agree what the number is? It's ridiculous. Mm. What's it got to do with me? Well, actually, for some organizations, some investors, it's going to be great, but others less so. And I think the other overriding background point I'd make just at the beginning is that when we look at what the Baal framework is thinking about and trying to achieve from a risk perspective is that there's a view held by the regulatory community that in a post-financial crisis period, there wasn't enough capital in and around the banks. And that's been progressively addressed in the last 10, 12 years. Mm. We've now got to the point where the Baal framework will require greater levels of capital against certain types of business. And that means that if you are a counterparty facing those types of potentially regulated entities, when they look to do business with you or for you, they're going to be constrained. And if we think about the level of business that's going on today, there is a view, and I've seen papers from various institutions, including some of yours, Mark, that suggest that the exponential capital needed to do just today's level of business could be 20 30 percent or whatever the yep. number is now yep. when you look meaningful. at that meaningful changes mm -hmm. when you look at that what then happens is you say well maybe the banks could get more capital well, the reality is that's quite a hard one to call because 
shareholders are probably unlikely to want to just keep subscribing to new share issuance to create capital. The idea of creating capital through retained earnings is a long game. It's not going to happen overnight. So what that means is if you've got a constrained number, which is your capital number sitting in an organization like a bank, then the other thing you can do is change your behavior around the sort of business you do. So you either do less business because you've got less capacity or you look at different ways of achieving the same objective. And that's when we get into the whole world of, okay, a traditional security lending transaction that moves through a system might have to move in a different way or against different fundamentals to still achieve the same economic outcomes. But there is no doubt that the use of that capital in the middle of that process will cost more. And what we know from the work we've done is that when there's an increasing cost in the banking system in the middle, it bleeds into the people at either end. Mm. So if you're going to pay to do a, a transaction as a lender or a borrower, at the end of the day, if that's costing more for somebody in the middle, that cost is being passed on to you in, in some shape or form. So the ramifications for buy side, for example, is not just with security finance, but if I want to do cash equities, I want foreign to do exchange, foreign hedging, exchange. Yeah. If I want to do any product that consumes capital in that prudential regulated entity, that cost is going to be different, probably more, right? What that means is then the entity that you're facing, if you're a beneficial owner or institutional investor, will change their behavior towards you. They'll say, sorry, we're not doing that anymore. Or if we are doing it, it's going to cost you a lot more. And I think that's where institutional investors need to be aware of those imminent changes. Our market is working hard on solutions that will mitigate some of those extremes, such as some of the work Mark's been doing on ratings, but also central clearing, use of pledge collateral structures mm. and use of derivatives. That in itself is problematic for some, but it's an alternative. So the industry is now accepting those changes are coming. They're going to happen progressively over the next two to three, five years. But also we're beginning to say, well, what are the things that we need to work on together to make sure that business can still happen? Because I don't think necessarily, certainly my interaction with investment firms, buy side clients, is I don't think there's a full appreciation of how that's going to change yet. And I think that one of the things that we're trying to do is educate that wider market more broadly because i do take your point brooke and i understand what your point is mark about those in the middle of the cauldron that's us and our immediate members we sort of know there's a change going on and people are stumbling their way through understanding what it is but we sort of get there's an issue here what we've now got to understand is that issue will ripple out as you said mark into that wider ecosystem i think it's really interesting just listening to you and thinking about from a bank's perspective banks are typically intermediaries in this market either as principal or as agents and it's the beneficial owners at both sides the hedge fund at yep. one end and the pension plan at the other that pick up the bill they are the buy side they buy what the agents and banks provide and so by being a regulated bank providing agency or principal services at a future time that will be constrained and or more expensive that means the buy side has to pay more yeah or be paid less or have risk transferred to them yes or has to change their relationship and assume more principal risk or agency risk or find other routes to market and hence the the ccp and all these kind of things i think that until very very recently because some of the unintended consequences of this regulation are a bit bonkers yeah People have hoped that common sense would prevail and that there was going to be an option for 
some of the ramifications for the banks to be sort of magicked away by a come to Jesus moment by the regulators. It has not happened. That moment has passed. And indeed, in Australia, Canada and Switzerland, we're already in the implementation phase. They are starting to do this. In America, the response to Basel is very interesting. It was fair to say that there weren't very many surprises to the upside in the proposed interpretation. No. There was also a lack of unanimity, which was unusual from the Fed and the OCC. There were a couple of dissenting voices and the consultation period is open until November. I do feel that there are some possible wiggle room issues there that could be helpful. So let's talk about that because I also appreciate that by doing this podcast with the two of you, if I don't assert myself, then you guys might (laughs) just continue on without me. So let's go back because that was a really helpful overlay. But for people that aren't those in the banks that know this stuff inside and out, and for those that aren't like the two of you... I say this with kindness that kind of geek out on this information. Let's just break down some of the basics. And Andy, and I will know, and we'll put it in our show notes, that Isla did put out a paper, as well as Mark will do the same for the paper you did over a year ago, focused on capital costs and securities lending. But in particular, the recent paper that Isla put out is a fairly digestible paper in terms of its information, and it does a good job of the basics. So if we go to some of those basics, Andy, maybe you can help us. So the Basel committee, maybe you can just give people like the two second version of that and how that then allows for all of the jurisdictional members of that across the globe, which now it's, I feel like it's most anyone that would matter in the global financial markets in terms of countries, because it's grown since even the initial G10. But essentially that each of those then groups are agreeing to sort of follow and implement whatever Basel comes forward with. And what Mark, you were just referencing, there can be variations on that theme in terms of what people implement. So can you give us a little bit of overview on that But tell us as well, because Mark, to your point, if certain countries are already in implementation mode, that's good to understand. If others, there is that window of open commentary. In particular, what I care about most is sort of the beneficial owner, buy side, asset owner community with pensioners ultimately and beneficiaries that perhaps are going to be impacted by either these increased costs that will be shifted towards them or potentially increased risk if ultimately transactions have to morph into other structures in order to still achieve the same outcome with less of a regulatory capital burden. If they should care about this, let's make sure that they understand why and can they still do anything or could they attempt to do anything or is it ultimately too late? Maybe you could take us through some of the key markets in the US, in the UK, in Europe, otherwise. Could I just picking up on the why should I care question? And there's another link that I think would be worth putting Yeah, we did some work with S&P Securities Finance, and we looked at the volume of transactions in the securities lending market. And we believe that the ramifications for the income for pensioners and investors was in the order of magnitude 20 to 30 billion euros per annum. So if people don't care about that, Good luck to them. But that's one very good reason. Why and you think that that, owners, that number is directly sort of, beneficial owners. And that's an opportunity cost and or a, a actual cost lost. That's revenue foregone as a result of these regulations. Predicted revenue foregone. The cost of business at the buy side end of the equation. 
Yes. And there's no doubt that there will be loss of revenue and loss of revenue opportunity because of these changes. Because I think one of the things that we see is that there's an increasingly view there's just not enough capital in the system to support everything that everybody wants to do. Mm. Without some fundamental rethinking, looking at other types of business, I think it's going to be a challenge. But going back to your original point, Brooke, about the Bar Committee and the standards. So the Bar Committee actually predates the 2007-2008 financial crisis. It had been around previously. Again, it was formed with a G20 mandate to look at prudentially regulated entities and provide standards around the analysis and assessment of risk that goes on within prudentially regulated entities. And from that, they developed a view of how much risk a balance sheet can have against an amount of capital that sits in that balance sheet. And the idea is to get a proportional balance between the level of risk and the level of capital that supports a particular institution. And the reason that this became very much to the fore was during the 2007-2008 crisis, we had a lot of institutions where the relationship between asset and liabilities collapsed. We had a lot of people with long-term assets and short-term liabilities. That contamination started in North America, came through Europe and the rest of the world in due course. And what we found there was, and this is the really important point, is the reason the regulators got particularly interested was those progressive bank failures put retail money, retail investors at risk. On occasions, there's less inclination to worry too much about the banks because the banks can look after themselves. But when regulators see what's happening will compromise the ability of retail investors to actually access their deposits and liquidity, then they tend to want to step in. And it's interesting that while we saw runs on banks in 2007, 2008, and there are pictures of people standing in the street, Northern Rock, people standing in the street, we saw the current manifestation of that in Silicon Valley Bank, when people using their phones move most of the liquidity out of that bank in moments. And that tells us a little bit about perhaps the fragility of certain institutions at certain times. So the Baal regime is a progressive regime that's gradually got more and more teeth since 2000 and 2007 and 2008. And we arrive at a moment today and the changes around the so-called Basel IV, which actually don't think it is four, it's three. 3.1. What's happened here, which is quite interesting, is previously banks calculated risk often using internal risk models. And those risk models looked at business and came up with a risk number, and that was posted against the amount of capital. And if the relationship was right from a regulatory perspective, they got that tick in the box and they could move on. What regulators became concerned about is many of those internal models seemed to indicate there wasn't much risk going on in these businesses. So what's happened is that the regulators have forced banks more back to a standardized approach where certain assets and types of business have a level of RWA that is a standardized matrix that's set by them. Now, that in itself is an intellectual debate, whether you like it or not, but it brings a number. But going back to Mark's point, what's happened here is a number of things that have come out of that change, which I believe are unintended consequences. And a really good example is the one that I'm sure we come back to is within the context of the standardized approach, if an entity doesn't have the benefit of a rating for any product, forget ours, it's looked at in a certain way from Mm. the bar perspective. And what that means is that a relatively small corporate, perhaps a mythical garage around the corner, has the same treatment from a risk perspective as a highly regulated and probably constituted usage investment fund. Mm. They're both treated the same way. And intuitively, that doesn't feel right to me, but it's one of those unintended consequences that's come out of the process, which means that certain types of business will be treated in a much harsher way than they would have been under internal models, where those internal models recognized 
who a USIP fund was. It's one of those things where the risk hasn't changed pre or post Basel no. or through the transition period, but the capital required has. Yeah. And there's that decoupling of what we could call credit risk reality yeah. from and I think capital what, exposure required. And what's really important for the listeners to perhaps think about, to Mark's point, is that there's a level of expected capital now has got to go against exposure to certain names that's got nothing to do with the change in their risk. It's no. to do with the accounting treatment of how we add up the numbers. And for me, that fundamentally feels wrong because we're not addressing the risk sitting in those entities. We're just looking at a formula. And if we remember in the crisis, ratings actually didn't do very well. If you think about it, they received some fairly damning comments around particularly how they were rating asset-backed securities, right? Let me just break that down Sorry. then. <laughs> So for XYZ Bank lending to ABC pension, let's just for argument's sake, it's a big US public pension plan. Yes. Arguably would be considered and deemed to be very credit worthy. Maybe even if you did some analysis, you know, in the land that Mark might be familiar with, maybe yep. even on a pure credit basis, feel more credit worthy than banks that are rated. But either yes. way, some bank is lending to some pension fund historically, they would have been able to use their own calculations and internal based risk model. The regulators are saying, we don't really trust your calculations. They're too favorable. We don't think that they're risk adverse enough, or generically, we don't think that they're prudent enough. So we're going to force you all to shift the way you look at that same exact pension fund with that same exact risk trade. And we're going to, rather than what might've been a very low risk capital charge, make you increase it exponentially. Absolutely. So, okay. for example, in the language of risk-weighted assets, a Basel bank may well have used their own internal models and said they're very strongly cap capitalized. We like the look of them. The risk is virtually zero. It's a public sector enterprise. Yeah. I'm going to put that in a 20% RWA. But just to quickly just do the math. <laughs> yeah. And an American bank who's actually technically not Basel regulated, but sort of outside it, say it's a public sector enterprise, therefore I can get it to 50%. In the Basel world, if that ABC pension plan is not rated by a recognized rating agency in the jurisdiction of the bank that is looking at this, so a Swiss bank or a UK bank or a European bank, a Japanese bank, Australian or Canadian bank, it's 100%. And there's going to be a transition period of which you can migrate to that 100%. And there will be a percentage of the standardized, which could be 65 or 72.5%. So instead of going from 20 to 100, it would typically go to 20 to 62, uh, 65 or 72.5. But that is a massive increase in the capital that that bank has to apply to a counterpart with whom they may be doing significant volumes of repo financing, hedging, derivatives, all manner of capital intensive businesses that need to be repriced, reconsidered, or maybe just not done. You know, this is the kind of thing to Andy's point. Capital is fine. Am I going to go and have a rights issue to be in the stock lending business? No. Probably not. I mean, no, I'm not going no, to. No. So am I going to be in a smaller securities lending business? Am I going to do it with different people, allocate my balances where the RWA may be lower? Or am I going to do something else and close that business? You don't have to be in securities lending. And I think one of the really important points on that is that if you take that thinking forward, you'll end up with liquidity coming out of our markets. 
because we rely on access to deep liquid pools of securities coming from a myriad of lenders to provide the market liquidity that our market needs to function. Now, if that becomes much harder or more expensive, that liquidity will drift away and it will tend to therefore perhaps fall into the hands of other groups that aren't back. What this does is it plays into certain other groups who may be slightly advantaged in this process. And um, isn't that almost, I mean, in some ways, you know, I'm sure the regulators have a view on this, but isn't it also likely that it shifts towards areas where the regulators don't have as much control and oversight yeah. over? You mean it might therefore... go into the shadows? <laughs> yeah. No, in a way, if they can't shed full light on practice and control it, they don't mind it scuttling into the shadows. That seems to be a regulatory strategy. In the summary example I gave a moment ago, yeah. if that same transaction, same XYZ Bank and ABC pension plan, if that pension plan tomorrow decided to seek a rating that then was recognized appropriately so, would that definitely change the economics and the cost and the capital charges? Or is that even still a question mark? So a couple of things, securing a rating in the jurisdiction that the bank that is in question that, you know, if it was a Swiss bank in a Swiss jurisdiction. Okay. That's what you were in saying. The UK that bank in the FCA in the Canadian bank under the mm -hmm. regulator there. So the OSFI could give them the relief. Yes, that would be helpful because the standardized solution would be not 100%. It would be the associated RWA with the rating, which is known. Yeah. So that's a good thing. But that's one of many things that could happen. You could manage your agreement, not in America at the moment, and not for mutualized funds, but you could organize pledge collateral solution that could reduce the exposure on the margin that's provided by the bank. So that would be very helpful. The pension fund could either directly or be through a sponsor or some structure, be able to participate in an activity through a central counterpart, if there were one active in yep. the securities in question and it fitted, yeah. there right. are challenges there, but there are two or three things. And I'm sure that it's not beyond the wit of financial engineers the world over. And there are already some smart people doing things like this to transfer the risk in a synthetic way, et cetera, et cetera. So there's synthetics, there's CCPs, there's pledge and there's ratings. But the rating thing is definitive. But synthetic CCPs and pledge all require a change of structure in some capacity to the actual transaction at hand. Maybe it's fine. They may not be possible given the regular sure. environment of the individual fund. For a pension right. fund, less likely. It's the mutualized funds that are having problems. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, there are factors to each of those and considerations yeah. to each that may or yeah. may not work. Okay. Yeah, you're absolutely right that all of those alternatives from derivatives through potential clearing through to using pledge techniques require a change in, in process. Obviously, a rating essentially would pull out of the system today one pledge and stick in another one, right? And actual fact that the disruption to business will be minimal. The assumption would be that there's a single A rating there and it changes to whatever it is going forward. So I think that there is an ease of use on that idea because it causes less disruption to the current business flow. And I think that you know, we shouldn't forget, we obviously look at all these different options. We do see that implementation of some of them, for example, when we look at pledge, we do support pledge through our own master agreement at ISLA, but we've had to put behind that quite a lot of resource to get various opinions to make sure it works mm. and it's enforceable in different jurisdictions. That's compounded by 
different requirements around pledging places like Japan, where you have to treat it quite differently. Mm. So there's always an incremental cost in changing the way you do business to mitigate. This is not about circumventing RWAs and risk. It's actually about mitigating some of the extremes of those structures, because I think fundamentally looking at a simple, let's say, use it fund where you've got to charge a 100% RWA to the residual exposure, which is typically the haircut amount, the economics of those trades are going to struggle to make sense. I think the other thing is that the Basel implementation is quite crude. And we've talked about some unintended consequences. And it isn't sophisticated enough to say, I'm doing treasury repo at huge volumes and I'm doing a special securities lending transaction that makes pretty much the same money for tiny amounts. So there will be transactions where the returns are so significant that people will wonder why on earth we're talking about this. If you are a specials only lender in exotic, high priced lending, sorry for wasting your time. Well, However, and if you are that person, give me a call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because the binding constraint is not capital, it's the scarcity of the asset that yeah. you're trying to lend. So let's not get overly excited. The problem is for the trillions, billions of dollars of general collateral stuff that is not looked at as safer, it's just bigger numbers. And that's where the capital really bites. And well, so, so efficiency a... in clearance, yeah. efficiency in margin, these kinds of things, synthetic type approach, well, ratings we... really are important. Yeah, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that one of the things that lending now more in sort of from a financing perspective is a great market for mobilizing collateral and actually creating, if you like, transformation of assets. So if you've got a derivatives program where you've now got to pledge collateral against unclear positions, you've got to get that collateral from somewhere. And we know many clients are using their securities lending programs as part of that liquidity play. And also as part of a financing play within the securities financing world, we know there's a lot of cash that's being used to finance positions. All of that becomes more expensive, potentially less attractive. And I think that if we want to look at the efficiencies of markets and we aspire to things like the capital markets union in Europe, we've got to make sure that one bit of regulation like this doesn't actually make it very hard to achieve anything else, particularly from a short end liquidity perspective. All right, listeners. Well, this conversation goes on for about another 30 minutes or so. So we're going to put a pause right here and give it to you in digestible increments. So this will end part one of our two-part conversation. Please tune in next week to hear part two. And as always, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening. Thank you.